I don't know about you, but the last thing I want to listen to is another boring debate about operational resilience and how it differs from business continuity. This week's guest talks about OPRES, but he tells me that the term doesn't mean what it says. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 96 of the Resilient Journey podcast, presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by longtime resilience professional Terry Downing. Terry and I talk about why it's time for a change in terminology and approach when we think about operational resilience. He tells me why it's time to have truly qualified individuals in charge, all the way up to the board level and he really emphasizes the word qualified. We'll talk about important business services, intolerable harm, and limitless fines for those who aren't prepared. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production. Terry, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to meet you, and we were just talking about how we haven't had that opportunity yet. Let's start a little bit with your background and tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, hi, Mark, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, be on one of your fantastic podcasts. Um, uh, as you know, uh, my name's Terry. Um, I've been in our industry for well, about 40 years. I think you can tell by my grey hair. Um, it's strange that we haven't crossed um, paths previously over the BCI world. Um, I started my career in the UK military and um, uh, I'm, I possibly am your second person uh, as like Dave Greenberg in the fact that I have jumped and abseiled out, out of helicopters. So it's, mm. it's um, becoming a trend within our industry, I would suspect. <laughs> Started as a telecommunications engineer, moved up into data center management, working in the financial industry. I built data centers, um, global infrastructures, IT teams, um, traveled around the world, uh, then to, uh, decided that I wanted to work for myself for a while, so I set my own company up, um, setting up um, either IT systems or business continuity, mainly business continuity, um, for places like uh, our national lottery, which was very interesting, um, then the UK government. Um, I then did a major disaster recovery exercise for um, IBM for a UK bank. Um, I joined a, a, a pensions company here in the UK, um, set up their um, operational resilience work through with um, a third party. And then I moved into um, MasterCard. Uh, again, I was um, I, I went to work with a friend and I'm, I'm here at MasterCard and I'm more of a uh, internal consultant come trainer. My VP calls me, uh, he says, I'm like having their own professor on the team. And that's where I am today at MasterCard. I, I like that, Terry, because, you know, we get um, to a, a point in our career and you didn't need to mention anything about your gray hair because it's an audio only podcast and nobody would have ever known. But um, seriously, we, we do get to a point in our career where we want to uh, mentor uh, other people. And um, that's uh, admirable. And, and I'm glad that you're able to, to do that. Now, one of the things that you've said is that you feel like it's time for a change. You said it's time to stop using the term operational resilience and to start using the term business resilience. Uh, explain what you mean by that, please. Okay. Um, so 
operational resilience to me is a, 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 um, not doing ourselves any favors in our industry because the moment you say operational resilience people start to think it's actually just the operational side of the billion the business the telecommunications the, the the technology side of it and they take the foot off the gas and, and operational resilience doesn't really as a title mean what it says because what we're really talking about is business resilience when i used to teach uh, business continuity um or, or when i do teach business continuity to champions um but the first word i say is is it's business it's not technology it's about the business it's about understanding what the business is it's a, it's a um i can teach anybody business continuity operational resilience crisis management disaster recovery technical recovery that's easy that's the easy part the hardest part is to get to understand um what the business is what's key to the business what's the culture of the business mm -hmm. and so i think it would be a far poignant term to use is to use the word uh, sorry use the, the phrase business resilience because all the regulations are talking about the, the the operational resilience regulations are talking about delivery of service it's not about delivery of technology when you say that people don't understand the term operational resilience you're talking about people maybe outside of the business continuity industry that are misconstruing what that means? I I, I would say it's more that people don't, even C-level. I mean, we, we as an industry are extremely good at education and promotion to ourselves and, 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 and to our risk management counterparts. And a little bit, if we push it into our, crisis, into our um, cybersecurity, but the people that really need to understand that it's business resilience is the sea level it's this uh, if you look at if you read the the uk um uh, regulations or if you read um the basil or basil um uh, papers on 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 what they're expecting which everything else is based on or even dora it talks about the service it talks about business it doesn't i mean dora does talk about the technical side of it but um my 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 thought is, or, or, or my understanding is, is that um, business continuity, people think that the business continuity manager owns it. Operational resilience, they think the operational person or the the um, the, the ops re uh, resilience person is responsible for it, when really the board is responsible for delivery of service and the board is responsible to the, the consumers at the end of the day. So, Terry, I, I'm not surprised, really, that the C-suite uh, is having a difficult time uh, understanding the meaning of operational resilience, because even within our own industry, our own colleagues were involved in a very long-running debate about what is operational resilience, what's the difference between operas and business continuity. And frankly, if I'm honest, I never really understood why some people were making this as complicated as they were. Uh, do you have thoughts on why there was difficulty within our industry, even in understanding what operational resilience was about? I, I think, yeah, um, I'll attempt to uh, to explain explain it, and also why why we've got um, some misunderstandings. I, I, the problem with our our industry is is that 
there hasn't been really a direct path into into business continuity, operational resilience. People have come from all different backgrounds. And so you've got risk managers, you've got cybersecurity people. I'm, I'm taking myself through CISP at the moment. And CISP has got a whole lot about business continuity and incident crisis management in it. So there's all these different interested groups. But the one group that hasn't really taken on ownership is the C-level. And... It, we don't, I, I was at a, um, a British Com uh, Computer Society meeting with Cambridge University, and I made a bold statement saying, as far as I'm aware, the MBA courses don't include operational resilience, business continuity and crisis management. And the, the guys who own those courses in, in, in the judge centre, uh, the professors, turned around and said, Terry, you know something? You're right. So we don't teach our leaders about it. We teach them about... Um, finances, marketing, you know, we teach them how to manage people, recruitment, HR, but we don't really teach them about how to how to maintain the business and what they're really about. Now, the other side of the problem where, where we're suffering problem is, is when, when Basil wrote um, the original papers back in 2019 um, and, the, and the British government took on getting theirs out through the, through the Bank of England, they were very descriptive rather than prescriptive. Mm -hmm. So that people took different interpretations of what it meant. But if you actually read all the paperwork, it actually turns around and says it's about delivery of service to a vulnerable consumer. So what you've got to do is identify what your services are, which is a little bit difficult and different from what business continuity is about because business continuity looks from the inside from inside going outwards, and it's determined by how much IT you've paid for, what resilience you've put into your IT, how much disaster recovery um, you've put into it. Whereas the operational resilience side of it looks from the outside as to what have you committed to your customer, as in an SLA, or um, what, what, what you're in deeming to do, like moving from physical currency to digital currency. What's the impact if that's not there? And then you've got to identify who your consumer is. Now, the way the regulations are written, it goes consumer, markets, economy, governments, and then firms. Whereas if you look at business continuity, it's firms. What can we afford? What can we what can we get away with? Or, or what, what, what are we going to take a risk with? The risks, the risk module management side has totally changed round. And it's now Right, you're promising 24 24/7 um, uh, access to this service, which is required by this business that provides life-saving services to X, Y, Z. What does that service get impacted if you lose your business? If you lose the service, so I think the the industry and our leaders need to understand this is not about the technology. Technology is a tool. This is about what services you provide to an end consumer. Even if, that, and that's the way the, the third party risk management part needs to fit into it, because you as a company may not actually be directly controlled by the regulators, but the regulators actually have this clause in the in thing saying that if they deem you're part of a critical path for a, for a service that is covered by the regulators, then they have the right to jump in. So that knowledge isn't there in our marketplace. And, and that's why we have the problem coming back to why the C suite don't really get it. 
you get people who are put into in charge of that who don't really get it. They're not. It, it's not like we're um, getting a, a a business continuity person in charge of it as the CRO, right. is it? I mean, uh, we don't get that. So you describe operational resilience as more of a framework, and I think if I remember from what I read, uh, it, it was sort of a six point framework. Do you want to just sort of briefly go through what that looks like? Because I thought it summed it up quite nicely. A framework to a framework to me is how you actually deliver um, the service. It's, it's not if, if you think of it being policy and frameworks and standards, which are the things that you must do, and then you've got the guidelines and the procedures, which are something that you expect people to do. The framework actually sets out uh, um, everything that you need to cover and roles and responsibilities, and then it turns around and says, right. Um, you identify what your consumer is. You identify what um, what the products are. You identify the um, um, the, the vulnerability, vulnerable people's impact tolerance, um, which is their impact tolerance, not the business's impact tolerance, because you're providing a service to them. You mm-hmm. then map those um, th- those all. You map those services, which a lot of companies don't do because it's stovepipe um it's a victorian way of looking at it rather than the digital way of looking at it and the service way it's it's this department delivers this this department delivers that but when you start mapping it across you start getting to see the dependencies and and it's very much of um there should be a member of the board who's responsible for the delivery of the service who turns around and says i'm going to pay for this service so the ownership part of that is, so you come to a service level. And then once you've got, got your defined services and you've done your impact tolerance review and your gap analysis and you've got this, by the way, you're doing this in real time, not once a year anymore, because real time is not allowed, is not really uh, relevant because of the way the market changes. You're now monitoring that on a real time basis. And then you're reporting to the regulators because that's, the, in fact, the SEC came up with something yesterday about the reporting of cyber resilience. Um, the British government have written a paper that will come out in 2025 that's turning around and saying that in the annual reports of businesses that operate in the UK market, not just registered in the UK market, but in the annual reports, they must step out what their plans are for operational resilience. So that all has to be in the framework. Right? That's the the context of it. Right. But the end goal is to identify your services and maintain those services. All the rest of it is the maintenance of it. When you talk about it being done in real time, you're talking about integrating this into the overall culture of the organization, right? Yeah. Um, Peter, uh, Peter Drucker once said that um, culture uh, eats um, strategy for breakfast. Right. It doesn't matter what we do as a strategy, what we put in place if we do not change the culture and there is a cultural change that needs to happen with operational resilience, it's no longer, Oh, I've got to do a BCP. I've got to do a BIA. Um, you know, uh, once a year, ticking the box, get it out of the way. This is now where the financial regulators and other regulators will follow suit. will turn around and go prove it, show the evidence. Right. So you're now moving from, once in a year, ticking the box exercise. Yes, I've done it. I've got somebody responsible for it. It's that one person who's 
um, every year having to chase everybody to do a business continuity plan. You've now got an active environment. You need to put this into change control. Um, so if you look at some of the new um, tools that are actually monitoring suppliers, they're offering this. I saw this at Infosight this year. They're now offering 24 by 7 monitoring of your key suppliers to make sure that they're not being, uh, being attacked or targeted and they're monitoring your in real time these businesses we need to do the same thing for business for, for operational resilience because we need to put it in change control we need to put it into new product we need to put it in mergers and acquisitions because it's no good because the regulators won't accept oh well we've acquired this company and we've just let it run now it, it's got to be real time so oh. because what will happen is if you look at it companies are getting fine left right and center now it's already happening um Recently in the UK, TSB got fined 64 million. The, per, the, the executive who was responsible for it got 70,000 pounds personal fine and was potentially going to go to prison. You look at Credit Suisse this week, um, they got fined by the FCA 87 million pounds for operational resilience risk management issues. These are real things that, that they're actually starting. Now, one of the worrying points for the regulations and not many people, and, I, and I've tried to find this, and if somebody can find this in any of the regulations, there's, there's unlike GDPR, which is four maximum of 4% of your um, your global re um, global revenues, right, which is still a big amount, the ones, uh, the ones for uh, operational resilience, there is no limit. It's punitive. I mean, so I, if somebody on this call actually, on, on this WebEx is listening going, oh, that's not true, please send me the information because I've read all the papers that I can read up to now. I've read South Africa and I've read the, the new Australian one and I can't find that information. All right. So yeah, if we're wrong, put it in the comments, let us know and we'll, we'll do what we can to, to fix it. But I'm glad we are having this discussion in this order because you, you have said something that I wanted to ask you about, but your previous answer really puts it in context so to say that operational resilience raises the bar is a massive understatement. But what we're seeing here now is sort of historically, I've talked to so many people in the business continuity industry who have said, yeah, they sort of fell into business continuity. They got tapped on the shoulder and someone said, hey, would you like to be involved in our business continuity program? And the next thing you know, they're running it and mm -hmm. not necessarily... Um, maybe with all that much training, but you are talking about the importance of having qualified, and I mean emphasis on qualified business resilience professionals on board and running these programs. Mm -hmm. And the fines that you just laid out explains why. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I mean, it, well, I used to, used to say to people is you would not um hand your accounts over to an, an a non-chartered accountant you would always do that because and you do that i used to say why do you give your it systems to people who are promoted into it events who are not chartered it professionals or qualified it professionals and i say the same for for um business operation let's talk about operational resilience operational resilience is this holistic umbrella that all our domains fit in cyber cyber resilience cyber security incident crisis management all fit into this umbrella now there are 
specialisms in there. But when you're looking at it, you're looking at it from a point of view of the continuation of service, right? To actually have that level of knowledge of what needs to be done and to be able to direct what, um, what these teams need to deliver, right? You need to set objectives and goals in line with the... The, the, the risk tolerance of the of the organization, which means you're into, in, into risk, business risk management. You need to turn around and state what's it. I mean, there's more that's going to impact people's brands from outages, especially in this 24-7. So it's a business type activity. But you need to have people who understand when you start doing the strategic. Do you remember the days when we used to do strategic BIAs or we tried to do strategic BIAs mm-hmm. and you took it from the board level? Well, this is actually turning around and going, you need to have people on the board, just like the, uh, the CSEC in the States have turned around and said, board members have to be cyber resilience qualified or knowledgeable and they need to publish it in their reports, right? We need to do the same with, with, with the chief resilience officer or the chief risk officer, right? Because we need to have people who are directing those um, specialisms, right? to what's needed by the business. Now, I've been as a contractor, I was in organizations reporting to the head of facilities who didn't understand the business, never mind understand um, what I was trying to do for them, but were told to do it. And you now get people who are promoted into it, right? Um, they come across, they get a C-level job, they were a C-level in somewhere else, they need to broaden the reach, but they can't set the objectives and make sure that the funding is there to actually deliver the service. Now, if you look at the OPRES regulations, they turn around and say that there has to be board level ownership, that they can't um, outsource that ownership. They can outsource the service, but they still own the risk. They still own the responsibility, right? They've got to deliver that service. And so you should have board level people who are responsible for deliver. Say that you and I were delivering a um a service to out into the marketplace one of us has to be responsible for it accountable right and therefore that needs to be a board level person but they need to understand risk management they need to understand what needs they need to set direction for people right and set value i i had um a few years ago i had a conversation with a cio of a global company and I was talking about business continuity and resilience. And he turned around and said, Terry, he said that um, the sales and marketing people want to have a, um, I'll play it as an analogy. Um, they want to have a five course meal. They want the finest bone china. They want the silver service around it in nice, elegant surroundings. Um, they want the finest of wines, right? And the food to be immaculate. And they want it whenever they want it. And he said, if they were paying for it, they can have it but they don't pay for it. I have to pay for it. So as far as I'm concerned, they can have a a McDonald's Happy Meal Hmm. and like it. Now the disconnect is because CIOs tend to get beaten up on because it's seen as a cost cost model. It's not not an aid to doing business. And we need to change that. And by the service owner owning that part of it, IT is delivering a service. The service owner is not going to turn around and say, oh, you can't have that amount of people because you go back to them and say, well, this is the increase in the, in the risk. And the only way you can do that is if the person at the board 
actually understands the implications of what they're uh, uh, of what they're asking the IT guy to do. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and and I like the uh, I like the analogy. We're starting to run a little short on time, but we'll see if we can move through this next one. In one of your presentations, you explained the difference between harm and intolerable harm. Now, before I ask the question, I should point out that we have a pretty good following in the UK, so the folks there uh, would have uh, a little bit more insight as to what that means, where some of the folks in North America may not be as familiar with those terms. So explain the difference between harm and intolerable harm, and then I have a follow-up question. Okay, so there's a, there's a paper from the FCA called FC21-1, Guidance for Firms on Fair Treatment of Vulnerable Customers. And in there, it talks about three levels, inconvenience, harm, and intolerable harm. Basically, an inconvenience is, is no adverse effect to the consumer. Harm, basically, is the, consu- the consumer's dissatisfied, it's got bad service, but the financial system services, the situation has been rectified. Um, there's a little bit of, of, of protracted um, disruption, but it's going to be resolved. Intolerable harm from a consumer point of view is the services actually cause distress. And, 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 and this is where it's a little bit woolly as to, as to the definition is significant distress to the end, to the end consumer that have been effective over of um, consequential loss or financial impact. And the, 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 the problem is, with, with that is, is that, You've got to then identify who your vulnerable consumer is and what their impact tolerance and intolerable harm is. It, it's not over time. It's not over finance. It's a mixture. It's looking at what service you provide, looking who you provide it to, and looking at what the impact. Um, if you're a third party, if you're not actually delivering the service directly to, you, to the consumer, it's your customer's interpretation of what their consumers' impact tolerance is. So intolerable harm, you have to look at it from the consumer's point of view and not through the lens of a a professional person working in the capital city. So is intolerable harm, this is my follow-up question now, is intolerable harm the threshold for which organizations are protecting against, or should it not wait until it gets that bad and should they be protecting against harm for example or is that overkill what the regulator wants you to do is never never to breach your 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 impact tolerance as far as the regulator's concerned you have to prove that you've got it's a bit like like the old days of business continuity proving that you've got active plans that people know about it that you've tested it that any risks are in your that have been identified with mitigations or I accepted on the risk and put on your risk register, but you still need to prove to the to, to the um, to the regulators that you have done the best endeavours. I mean, there, there may be something that you turn around and go, "Oh, actually, that's far too expensive for us to do." But then you have to look back and say, "Well, oh, excuse me a minute, you've created this SLA, you've turned around and created this service, and now you're turning around and saying that you can't deliver it." So in a lot of cases, operational resilience is actually about service customers delivering what they said they would deliver, which they're taking their consumers' money for. 
I, I like that. Now, look, I'm going to ask you probably the hardest question of the whole interview here. So uh, if you could have any song played uh, announcing your arrival, Terry's in the building, maybe as you walked into the office or if you're doing a presentation as you're walking up on stage, what song would you choose to be playing and why? Zach Brown Band and Jimmy Buffett singing Chicken Fried. All right. You have to explain that one. Well, first of all, I, I think I, I think American country music is absolutely fantastic. I really uh, do uh, appreciate it. Um, but the song has got some very key lyrics into it about what about what really matters. If, if you listen listen to the lyrics, and one of the, the, the lyrics turns around and says, um, "You can't put a dollar a dollar price on a peace of mind." Um, about the um, the mother's love that type of thing. And there's also a section in the middle, being ex-military, that's actually about respecting the military. And that really, when I first time I heard it, that's the bit that grips me. So I love that song. My my, my children think I'm mad. I play it all the time. It's, it's <laughs> on my, my top Spotify. All right. That's a, that's a great answer, Terry. I was, uh, I'll get you out of here on this. Do you have any upcoming presentations? And what's the best way for people to connect with you? Okay, the best way to people to connect with me is on LinkedIn. I'm the one that's parachuting in the picture in the um, Red uh, Red Devils uh, parachuting kit. Um, this year, I'm co-chairing the um, operational uh, operational and organisational resilience and risk conference in London on the 19th of September. Um, I'm attending the resilience summit in London again on the I think it's the 16th of October. And then I'm at BCI World on the 1st and 2nd of November. Excellent. Well, we will definitely see you in London at BCI World. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, Terry, thanks for spending this time uh, on the podcast today. We appreciate having you here. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mark. I'll do it again anytime. One, two, three, four. I want to thank Terry Downing for joining me and being my guest this week as we talked about operational resilience and why it's time to look at things a little bit differently. The Resilient Journey is a Resilience Think Tank production. Next week, I'm joined by Bob Arnold as we take a look ahead to DRJ Fall 2023. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey. chicken fried and cold beer on a friday night a pair of jeans that fit just right and the radio world